Hey, Pembroke, look over there! Look over right there. Hey, bring me back my Cocoa Pebbles! <laughs> like shooting fish in a barrel. Alright. Huh, king size pebbles. Huh, must be new. Oh, bottoms up. Oh, ow! The real rocks! Jeez, I almost lost a tooth on these. <laughs> I knew keeping a spare empty box would come in handy. Yabba dabba doo! There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The penny and James got a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. We couldn't think of any proper rock puns for our names, but welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kind of Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. I'm Pimrock W. Stoney. Show off. <laughs> yep. For our 50th episode, a landmark for us, we decided to landmark for cartoons, and, well, we're both big Hanna-Barbera nuts, so why not the first primetime animated sitcom the Flintstones. Yabba dabba doo. It's something new. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I mean, even though the show probably needs no introduction, we're going to give it one anyway. I mean, it's part of the show after all. It all begins with Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera realizing their two televised hits to that point, the Huckleberry Hound Show and the Quick Draw McGraw Show, were labeled as kids programming. Which kind of bugged them, since their previous theatrical successes with the Tom and Jerry characters for MGM found universal appeal with all age groups. Nothing like violence to get everybody involved. <laughs> so, to get their uh, all-ages bona fides back, they set out to do a situation comedy. One of the dominant forms in primetime television back in those early days, and, well, most days, and it was also the closest to their wheelhouse in terms of their strengths as creators. So they tossed around concepts about hillbillies, pilgrims, and more, before settling on cavemen for what would become the Flintstones we know today. Which supposedly took some inspiration from an old Tex Avery short. That's right, the first Batman. Yep. As you can notice, their, their outfits are very, very similar to kind of the Flintstone outfits. And as they got further into developing the premise, we can't help but address the even bigger woolly mammoth in the room. Bill Hanna was never shy about saying their work for this show was heavily inspired by Jackie Gleason's groundbreaking sitcom, The Honeymooners, though Joe Barbera had a considerably different recollection. Yeah, but, I mean, when you think about it, almost every sitcom, like, a high majority of sitcoms these days take inspiration from The Honeymooners. I mean, you could borderline call a majority of sitcoms a honeymooner ripoff if you think about it. And the Honeymooners themselves were the subject of a lawsuit from the creators behind the radio series The Bickersons, due to perceived similarities between it and Gleason's show, which is just more proof to me that there are truly no new ideas under the sun. And let's also not forget there were Laurel and Hardy films with several similar themes, including the memorable feature film Sons of the Desert, where the duo lie to their wives in order to attend a meeting of the Fraternal Order of the same name, predating Cramden's Raccoon Lodge and Fred and Barney's Water Buffaloes by some decades. Well, it's not like the Flintstones are the only thing that take 
inspiration from the uh, Honeymooners. I mean, there was a Warner Brothers Looney Tunes short that was a straight up Honeymooners parody as well. Yep. Where there were mice. I almost said Mises. <laughs> of course, eventually Gleason would not file a lawsuit, deciding he did not want to be known as the man who took Fred Flintstone off the air. Funny, that's two cases where someone said something similar about a Hanna-Barbera product. For the previous Production. instance, go listen to our Yogi Bear podcast. I mean, I sure wouldn't want to be known as that person. So to get this show sold, Joe Barbera pitched himself silly, attempting to sell the show to every network and distribution company in the business, including a disastrous meeting at Screen Gems, the distributor for Hanna-Barbera's animation at the time, where two competing agencies did not want to let on to each other what they might or might not have found funny about the pitch. Basically, Joe was doing all these gags and voices to silence. Man, that sounds insanely uncomfortable. He eventually got a deal with the newest of what we now consider to be the traditional three major networks, ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, now owned by Disney. Much like everything else. Yep. There would be some network notes about getting new vocal talent, aside from the now heavily relied upon Dawes Butler and Don Messick, and a couple name changes going from Flagstones to Gladstones to finally Flintstones, all leading to a debut on ABC in September of 1960 with Winston Brand Cigarettes as a sponsor. You know why Flagstones didn't fly, right? Yeah, high and lowest. Yeah, they felt the name was too close to their name, which is the Flagstones. Now, of course, the whole cigarette thing. This is from before television and radio advertisements for tobacco products were banned from airwaves, which has made the old footage of Fred enjoying a drag all the more incongruous as time has marched on. I, I do have to say that the, the first commercial they did of that is actually legitimately funny in kind of a terrible way but um i remember when i first saw one of those commercials it like blew my mind the first one it's where it's like their wives are like working outside and fred's like oh, they work hard don't they barney and barney's like yeah i hate seeing them work so hard and fred's like yeah let's go in the back so we don't have to watch them i'm just like jesus <laughs> yeah the the biggest problem with probably that winston cigarette ad now is because that's spread all over the internet now and lots of people have seen it. But weirdly, despite a lot of people seeing it, a lot of people have also forgot that The Flintstones was originally a primetime sitcom aimed at adults. So I keep seeing people post that cigarette commercial and people, either to the people who post it or the people responding to it, complaining about how they're selling cigarettes to kids. And it's like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not the case. Now, the show's premise is as tried and true as any format in the sitcom genre. Fred Flintstone is a blue-collar construction worker for the Slate Rock and Gravel Company, who is rough around his edges and quick to anger, but ultimately he has a heart of gold and a lot of love for his wife, Wilma. In short, Fred Flintstone is a, a very moody son of a guy. <laughs> yeah. His neighbor, and eventually co-worker Barney Rubble, is Fred's frequent comrade-in-arms and occasional rival over some odd matters. <laughs> hey, Fred, what's up? Barney's an interesting character, actually, when you break down his attributes, because he's simultaneously witty and dim-witted, combined with his charming relationship with his wife, Betty, 
all rounding him out to be a foil to Fred, who acts generally on equal terms, even if he's not always treated that way by Fred. Yeah. Fred is definitely the jerk with a heart of gold concept to its uh, extreme. Well, not maybe not extreme, but he is definitely, a, if you look that up in that, that term in, in TV tropes, yeah, you'll probably get a picture of Fred Flintstone or Homer Simpson. Now, naturally, Wilma and Betty are hardly bystanders in all this fun. They drive stories between their spending habits and their own foibles, despite being the level-headed ones compared to their goofball husbands. Also, Betty's trademark giggle is simply adorable. Oh. <laughs> Rounding out the core cast is Fred's pet dinosaur, Dino, who behaves very much like a loyal, loving, excitable dog. Now, these attributes make Dino anachronistic in two directions. Certainly no dinosaur would behave or sound like a dog. And dinosaurs were long, long gone before the days of the cavemen. But anachronisms are a major part of the order of the day with the Flintstones. Oh yeah, I, I can think of one of those in the first episode right away. <laughs> you can even hear it in the theme song the show would adopt in its third season, where the cast is described as the modern Stone Age family. That is the uh, running gag. I might be reading more into that line than was intended, and the whole thing is a happy accident, but the juxtaposition of modern and Stone Age is a big part of the show's charm and a major source of gags. Just imagine a bird using their beak as a record player needle, or as Weird Al famously puts it, Got a baby elephant vacuum cleaner! And said animals quipping, It's a living! <laughs> and you get the idea. The, the biggest on, ongoing gag throughout the whole series. It's a living. Heck, just me describing those things probably brings to mind the Hanna-Barbera art style to anyone who grew up with the show's original run or its reruns over the course of 60-plus years since then. That, that reminded me of something that uh, something Vilma's voice actress, uh, Jean Vanderpelt, said once. She talked about how, unfortunately, when uh, the Flintstone, original Flintstone series went to syndication, she opted for like a $15,000 payout rather than getting residuals from the syndicated run. And she regrets not getting the residuals because she was like, if I got the residuals, I wouldn't be living in this city. I'd be owning this city. So with Dawes and Don out for now, who voiced our core characters? Well... Fred himself is film and TV actor Alan Reed, who even bears a slight resemblance to Fred, and would perform the character until his passing in 1977. And I'm sure, Pemmy, you know Alan's other major Hanna-Barbera contribution. Oh yeah, it's Dum Dum from uh, Touche Turtle. Exactly. I also know that uh, Alan Reed passed away during the production of uh, Lap Olympics. At the start of the series, Fred makes some appearances voiced by Alan Reed, but by the end of it, it's... Uh, Henry Corden, who takes over the role and actually played it for the longest. Yeah, and, and Henry would be Fred's singing voice a good while before that, too. Yep. Holding her own opposite Alan and Henry was Jean Vanderpill as Wilma. And Jean would al eventually also voice Pebbles Flintstone, more on her later, as well as Rosie the Robot on the Jetsons, and Winsome Witch as part of the Secret Squirrel Show. I think Vanderpill has a very iconic voice. I mean... I mean, yeah, because she was there for a long time. There was, like, uh, even a commercial that was just her, like, advertising some Flintstone product. And it was just kind of like, all right, cool. 
Yeah, Vanderpill is indeed the longest tenured performer of any of the Flintstones characters, voicing Wilma as late as the character's guest appearance on 1997's Weird Al show. It's a long run. Yeah. Veteran voice actress Beatrice Benaderet, who did all manner of female parts for Warner's short subjects, including Mama Bear for Chuck Jones's Three Bears shorts, originated Betty Rubble's voice and performed the character in the program's first four years. Scheduling conflicts with the show Petticoat Junction led to her relinquishing the role to Jerry Johnston for the final two seasons. At least they found someone who could still do that laugh. Mm-hmm. And of course, the immortal Mel Blanc performs double duty here as both Barney Rubble's playful chuckling voice and the high-pitched barks and yelps of Dino. Even though his voice for Barney is very different in the first season compared to the rest of the series. Indeed. And it is that first season and first episode which we're going to start in on. The Flintstone Flyer. Now, normally we'd mention other supporting roles as they come up, but a lot of them don't come up. We don't get to hear uh, John Stevenson as Mr. Slade in any of the episodes we reviewed, for instance. So this was John Stevenson's first role for Hanna-Barbera, and he'd become a mainstay on the with the company as well. Yeah, for decades. Voicing such characters as Fancy Fancy and Top Cat, Lazy Luke and Wacky Races. Or if you want to watch our Mumbly show, he was uh, Chief Schnooker. You'd better watch our Mumbly show! <laughs> uh, and if you want something that's not Hanna-Barbera related, he was Thundercracker on Transformers. Naturally. You know, we just want to mention it because, again, Stevenson is a podcast favorite, and we'd be remiss if we didn't. But anyhow, on to the Flintstone Flyer. The first thing we see is Fred taking care of a 7-10 split in bowling by splitting the bowling ball. One of many classic bowling gags with the Flintstones. Yeah, this is our first look at his Twinkle Toes approach that would become one of the show's most iconic visuals, and this exact gag is actually part of the episode proper a little later on, making it less an opening gag and more a preview of the show's events. These previews would be excised from the syndicated versions in later years. Yeah, it was one of the things that, because uh, I used to watch it on syndication, and then when I when they started airing it on Cartoon Network, it threw me off because I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Not all of these little openings are previews. Sometimes they do actually have gags that are specific to the opening. Indeed, and we'll see one later on. So for this episode, I was watching on HBO Max, which has the restored original opening with the song Rise and Shine by Hoyt Curtin, which sounds like an inverted This Is It from the Bugs Bunny show. But this theme predates Warner's show, airing by precisely one month. So call it a hell of a coincidence. It's not the weirdest coincidence I've heard, but it is still crazy. <laughs> da, 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 da. This was also my first time really seeing this intro. And the first thing that jumps out at me is when we first see Fred in his car, he's not using his feet to power it. it took me a little bit to realize that he's used uses his feet more for braking and accelerating. And once he gets up to speed, puts them to rest. I did actually see this intro uh, for the first time on Cartoon Network because I think they restored it for the Cartoon Network airings. But I remember seeing it and going, and it threw me off because I used to watch, again, I used to watch it on syndication. So I was used to the Flintstones meet the Flintstones, 
you know, opening. And when I first saw this, I was like, what the, what opening is this? Well, not a terrible opening. I, I do have to say that the Flintstones meet the Flintstones is a far more iconic intro, I think. Might be to be right sure. There. But back to, to the foot power. This visual gag is the reason why I would never want to take a kick from anyone in that setting with a driver's license. Also reminds me, I have a friend who, who complains that he can't find shoes that fit him properly because he has wide feet. So uh, me and Kyle have always kid and call, told him he had Flintstone feet. Now seriously though, this has to be how Fred survives on his diet. He burns so many calories. That's why he eats so much. I mean, you saw those ribs. Yeah. <laughs> And if you think I'm overanalyzing this, folks, after 50 episodes of this podcast, are you really surprised by any analysis I make of these cartoons? <laughs> I, I do want to say, though, while I do prefer the uh, the later intro more, I do want to say the, the scene where Fred takes the food from uh, Wilma and then sneaks back in and kisses her on the cheek is actually really cute. It is. Also, Dino is blue here. And not yet his now standard light purple. I think he was blue when he first appeared, but also when he first appeared, he could talk. So things changed. Yeah. <laughs> no explanation. The story proper begins with Fred waking up on a Sunday morning, looking forward to a day of just reading the Sunday paper and relaxing. The news hasn't arrived yet, according to Wilma, but it gets to Fred via paperboy Arnold in painful fashion a moment later. And Fred just says he's happy that it only comes once a week because it knocked him on his rear. Yeah. Between this and the bowling visual, I get the impression that the Hanna-Barbera team knew they had to put their best foot forward with this first episode because today these are very well-known gags for the show and seeing them right at the start, you know, you just knew they wanted to hit the ground running. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression, after all. That's true. Even though there are elements from this first episode that you could say has a rocky start. Huh? Mm. Huh? Huh? All right. Yep. As Fred reads his paper on his backyard hammock, he's interrupted by Barney shouting, Fuck! Repeatedly, as he tries and fails to hit a golf ball. Fred will give him what for if he hears one more for. <laughs> what a... A lot of really good dialogue exchanges. <laughs> and as he returns to his reading, a headline about him captaining the bowling finals gets him out of his sour mood just as Barney finally hits the ball, which rolls through the hollow portion of one of the trees Fred's hammock is tied to and winds up in Fred's mouth. And next thing you see is Fred chasing down Barney with his club, slamming him in the head repeatedly. Um, maybe this is the reason... Barney is both simultaneously dim-witted and quick-witted. Yeah, well, if your neighbor popped out upside down from your tree insisting you had to pooch your lips so he could play the ball where it lands, well, let's just say I don't quite blame Fred for this outburst. You know what? That's fair. <laughs> Chased up another tree, Barney tries to reason with Fred and advises him to get a hobby. Fred's hobby? Peace and quiet on Sunday, and he'll break Barney to pieces if he doesn't get it. You know, in Fred's uh, defense, that's a good hobby. So a bit later, Fred is calmed down enough to be napping when the sound of invention wakes him up. Invention sounds like a loud hammer, by the way. 
And a clunk, and a clunk, and a clunk, clunk, clunk. Fred walks over his stone fence, quite literally. <laughs> I, I love that gag. Something about like the limited animation actually makes it even funnier. Because it just he does it so naturally. <laughs> and he finds Barney building a contraption. This being the aforementioned hobby. Barney claims it'll make him the first man to go into the blue. And while Fred is still hung up on the noise, he eventually wonders if it'll work. Into the blue. That thing? Will it work? It'll work, Freddy friend. On account of the spiggle bolts connected to the toggle switch. The toggle switch connected to the ratchet. The ratchet rod connected to the tension trough, which in turn connected to the flywheel. Then zoom! Before you know it, you're airborne. Now, what do you think of my invention, Fred? So Fred has a better idea to achieve flight, with his fist bone connecting to Barney's jawbone. And zoom! We were you just know. missing a to the moon to make, to make this a little too spot on. Yeah, I was about to say that. It was like, that, that's, that's a few words short of uh, quoting Jackie Gleason there. At least, hey, to Fred's credit, at least it wasn't towards his wife. Very true. Actually, that's if there's anything I can say is a plus the Flintstones has over the Honeymooners, I don't think Fred has ever once threatened to hit. Wilma. And definitely not as a catchphrase. Amazing. A Cro-Magnon more civilized than a 1950s man. <laughs> Go figure. As Fred snarks that Barney's device looked more like a dinosaur egg beater, sure enough, Barney flies by sh and even shows off by doing it with no hands. Though I, I have questions about how he's not falling out of that thing. Yeah. Fred grumbles back about Barney having no brains either but snaps out of his grumpiness when he realizes it's working. And once Barney asks Fred what he thinks of it now, Fred gives us the very first yabba-dabba-doo in the show's history. Which, was, by the way, was an improv by Alan Reed. Yeah. Uh, seemingly the script just uh, required, asked for a, like, yahoo, or something like that, but he said yabba-dabba-doo and said it was inspired by uh, a commercial that says a little dabble, do ya? Nice. At this point, his tune has changed so much, Fred is saying, we did it. Yep. He'll be president of the Flintstone Flyer. Yep, with Barney as vice president of production. And Barney's saying he'd rather, he was going to name it the Barney Copter, but nah, nah, it's, it, it's not good for the hard sell. Well, Flintstone Flyer's alliterative, so... It, it does sound better than Barney Copter, I mean... Yeah little less individually specific. Still, Fred is kind of pushing himself into the picture a little hard. And there'll be two in every garage. A his and a hers. So now Fred wants to try the device, insisting anything Barney can do, he can do better. Barney gives him the basics, but has one other thing that Fred just brushes off in his confidence. That detail was how to land. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I mean, for better or for worse, if there's anything you can give Fred credit for, he's definitely got confidence. Much to his detriment. And why is it we say it doesn't matter? Fred's too big to get off the ground. He's too fat. And he crashes the flyer off a cliff. Yahoo-wee! Wait, that's a different character. In a sling, Fred resigns from his position as president, and Buzz Barney takes over the role. 
Fred also resolves to bowl in his injured state, even if he has to push the ball with his nose. That's dedication. Hey, when you like a sport, <laughs> you like a sport. Eventually, Wilma returns home with groceries, and at first we think she's also talking about bowling. But when she mentions tickets, Fred gets puzzled and asks what he needs them for. Seemly, they have tickets to the opera tonight. How do you have an opera in the Stone Age? It is the modern Stone Age family. Well, <laughs> if Klingons can have opera, why not? And by the way, they've had these tickets for over a month, and Barney's the one who bought them. Don't. Fred confronts the forgetful Barney, and the latter laments they'll be drummed out of the team for his goof. Sorry, I checked out a... I, I had to check something really quick, because uh, I I couldn't think of a way to word it, but Fred falling off a cliff was reminding me of a certain Warner Brothers character that has a pension for falling off cliffs. Mm. And I took a look to find out that, hey, guess what? One of what? the writers, uh, Michael Maltese, of is course. the co-writer of this first episode, along with Joseph Barbera. And what did Michael Maltese write a lot of? The Roadrunner. Yep. Actually, it seems like a majority of the first few seasons were written by either Michael Maltese or Warren Foster, who Warren Foster was also another uh, Looney Tunes veteran. Mm-hmm. So Fred wishes his leg was injured so he'd have an excuse to miss out. And Barney asks maybe he fractured his skull. Fred issues another of his threats, then gets an idea. A another very soon-to-be classic Flintstones idea. <laughs> They'll fake an injury to get out of the opera just before they leave for it and go bowling after all. Fred whispers his plan, and we transition to Fred being so confident he's singing A bowling we will go, a bowling we will go, right as the rebels arrive. I I'm just going to assume he sings this a lot, otherwise, <laughs> well, I probably would have gotten wise. And this is the first time we see Betty in the cartoon. And right off the bat, she's suspicious they're overdoing their enthusiasm for the opera. But everything seems fine until Fred starts going into some sort of uh, conniption fit. Yeah. Barney calls it shock, setting in later than normal due to Fred's thick skull. The plan unfolds as Band-Aid Barney says he'll watch over Fred while the girls enjoy the opera. And the reluctant wives head off to enjoy the show as the guys celebrate pulling one over on the girls. To Fred's credit, sometimes shock can come extremely later. Though, uh, I gotta give Fred credit for anything. His, uh, acting is pretty impressive. I wish I could make my eyes sling around like that so easily. The celebration is short-lived because Fred realizes they have no wheels. And, of course, hitchhiking won't work since they need to be back before Wilma and Betty. So Barney suggests the flyer, which he's rebuilt to accommodate more weight. Despite this, they still have some trouble getting off the ground. Also, that's one of the, uh, rockier factors because soon after this both the rebels and the flintstones would have their own separate cars but hmm. eh, maybe one was in the shop in order to take off fred needs to flap his wings for extra power considering we've seen some other silly cartoon slapstick in the show including stuff that would kill a non-cartoon caveman but you know fred's just inconvenienced by it i'm not as bugged by this as i normally would be i mean we we literally saw barney brush off being hit in the head with a, a mallet and a golf club multiple times with 
no side effect. Though that is a gag that we didn't mention earlier that was actually I thought was had a good timing was whenever Fred interrupted Barney making said invention, he would like take it would he would take the mallet from Barney right when the next hit was gonna happen and hit him in the head. And timing is just really good. Makes it funny. Also, Fred re-elected himself president of their company. A Flintstone flyer. The girls feel rotten leaving their husbands at home and decide to call them during intermission like any good, loyal spouse would. Meanwhile, Fred is warming up and we see some monkeys moving the fallen pins out of the way and we get that split gag from earlier. The monkeys being uh, one of many gags we'll see later throughout the series. Barney gets Fred a coconut cooler from a vending machine manned by an actual person rather than an animal. Which is kind of weird, all things considered, because that won't happen in later episodes. But the dry, right. he responds to Barney's thanks, is a reference to puppeteer comedian Senor Wences. It's okay? It's okay. All right? It's all right. Barney bowls next and gets his thumb stuck in the ball. And it's here we see how a mistimed gag exposes issues with Hanna-Barbera's version of limited animation. You see, Barney is shown flying down the lane for far longer than the lane would have gone, slowing down the punchline and making it more obvious that they're scrolling the background more than moving Barney himself. Hey, what works? (laughs) This is compounded by the timing of his trip through the ball return being considerably better timed by comparison. Maybe I'm picking nits, but it just stuck out like a sore thumb, especially since the next scene is almost flawlessly executed. With Barney up to bowl again and accidentally dropping the ball on Fred's foot, and his howling cross-fades with the traditional operatic fat lady belting out a high note. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's... Again, it's the first episode. They, got some ro- they have some rocky spots. We, we wouldn't see anything nearly this bad in the other episode we watch. And not to mention, uh, again, we got Viking opera lady in the Stone Age. <laughs> okay, the Viking part, I understand what how they that would have occurred. But again, at the same time, opera in general, you know, opera just isn't all Wagner. Yeah. Hey, who knows? It could be maybe they had the uh, medieval Stone Age times. I mean, if this is the modern Stone Age. Yeah, fair. So from their box seats, geez, how did Barney forget such expensive tickets? Box seats aren't cheap. Uh, Unless you're going to see the Muppet Show. Hey, you know, okay, I got nothing (laughs) on that one. I'm more wondering how he afforded those. Well, I can tell you how we got our tickets to the Muppet Show. We entered the contest. Yeah, we lost. (laughs) Nice. Anyhow, Wilma is still feeling guilty and picks up on the plan to call them at home. Walking out of the opera house, Betty suggests looking for a phone in the bowling alley across the street, telegraphing the inevitable. Man... What a what a amazing coincidence that these two locations are so close together. Well, in a city with a population of 2,500, it might be a slightly less of a coincidence than we think. Okay, how about a coincidence of all the places they could go to 
get a phone, that would be the one they pick. That's fair. Wilma hopes Fred isn't running a fever, right as Fred boasts he's hot tonight! However, they got... They get no answer on the phone, and then Betty notices something. Yep. Barney drops the ball on Fred's foot again, and as Fred's about to pound him, Barney spots their better halves. And as Wilma decides to head home, Betty spots their husbands. Uh-oh. The male duo hide behind one of the ball returns and quickly try to plot a way out, settling on using a broom to improvise mustache disguises. However, this is... Doesn't stop them from getting a, ooh, nasty hit in the head. Yeah, good walloping. But after said walloping, the wives fall for the ruse, which is accompanied by German accents. Yeah. Shaw. They give them a powder. Is this how you greet people in Bedrock? You walk up and go, pow? We will need to take a powder. Not funny, right? Ha ha ha, No. <laughs> Though the ladies still have some small suspicion, they leave for home. And the guys now have to hurry back faster. And Fred has to point that out because Barney's like, well, back to bowling. And Fred's like, are you crazy? They're going home. And Fred and Barney spot the wives speeding home, doing about 80. Boy, this must be how Wilma keeps her figure. I mean, 80 by foot, jeez. And Fred speaks some pilot jargon that Barney doesn't get. It means go faster. I got a better question. If this is the first flying machine, how does Fred know pilot jargon? Mm, rule of funny, I suppose. It's the yeah. only explanation I got. I'm not necessarily satisfied with it either. Eh, doesn't help that later episodes would have planes. <laughs> but that's besides the point. When the gals get to the Flintstone home... The guys have made it back, and Barney's reading Fred bedtime stories, offering to read I Was a Teenage Brontosaurus next. However, right when the uh, right when the wives are perfectly fooled and think that they've been really terrible to doubt their husbands... Barney can't help but launch back into the German character, still with the mustache over his lips. The gig is up. Oh... Wilma and Betty lay into their husbands, who bid a retreat on the Flintstone flyer. I just want to say it's one of those cases where uh, they don't show it, but that actually makes it better. Because <laughs> you just see the uh, you just see the house and it shake and things being thrown out the window. Not the head, Wilma. Not the head. <laughs> Wilma says whatever comes up must come down, especially the fat ones. And she and Betty are playing gin as Fred and Barney pedal and flap for over six hours. Poor Barney. Yeah, an exhausted Barney can barely keep the thing airborne as we fade out. But hey, Betty did say that it, it would be it will be nice to have them back. The closing credits include Fred putting out the cat who outsmarts him, a gag later expanded upon in the updated versions in later seasons. And I still have the same same issue with that gag that I've always had. Why doesn't Fred just go through the window like the cat's did, the cat did? Also, interesting note, when this first aired, there was a sign, when they showed the distant shot where you get to see all, like, all the Bedrock houses. In the original airing, there was actually a sign for uh, Winston Cigarettes. Hmm, okay. That has been removed for obvious reasons. <laughs> when we return from the break... 
Barney Rubble gets the parenting bug. Bam, 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 bam! Ow, my head. Got a little too into it there, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> Return to the Flintstones on Boomerang from Cartoon Network. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, in 1989, the Nintendo Entertainment System had dominated the video game landscape, and the company wanted a piece of the Saturday morning market. In conjunction with Deke, Captain N, the Game Master, brought characters from Metroid, Mega Man, Castlevania, and more to animation for the first time with... Well, the results were often downright strange. Chrissy Harding joins us again to discuss how strange in two weeks. We now return to the Flintstones on Boomerang from the Cartoon Network. So, critically, the Flintstones weren't exactly a darling. But then again, not much in 1960 was. This was the period infamously described as the vast wasteland in FCC Chairman Newton Minow's speech the following year. If I remember right, one critic actually called uh, the Flintstones an uh, ink and paint disaster. But though I remember someone else, whenever the show surprisingly did become a hit, made the comment is like, if you watch it and it feels like a caveman version of the Honeymooners, well, no one else seems to care. <laughs> Of course, Minnow's speech would earn him the notoriety of being named after a boat. The SS Minnow. Ha! I did not know about that connection. Well, now you know, little buddy. <laughs> and let's be honest, the disconnect between professional critics and the viewing public at large is nothing new. No, um, no! I, I do think there's one disconnect from that that happens that a lot of people don't think about when they do get mad at critics and that's the fact that in case of movies these critics watch like a ton of movie like literally almost every movie and the average movie watching populace doesn't so sometimes a lot of the things that seem bad to them because they've seen it repeatedly or seen it better isn't something that you know the ordinary person does right that's the only defense I'm giving him, though. <laughs> okay. What mattered to ABC and to Hanna-Barbera was that The Flintstones was a ratings hit and would be for the majority of its six-season run, being a top 30 program for the first three seasons, according to the Nielsen ratings. As such, more primetime animation followed in its wake, including The Bugs Bunny Show, which was Warner Brothers repackaging the theatrical cartoons they still had television rights to at long last, with new material by Jones, Freeling, and company. As well as The Bullwinkle Show, a rebranding of the daytime show Rocky and Friends on NBC, and several new offerings from Hanna-Barbera. Such as uh, The Jetsons, which you could say is kind of like the polar opposite version of The Flintstones, focusing on a white-collar family in the future, or one of my personal favorites, Top Cat. At least we also forget the dramatically different action-adventure series, Johnny Quest. Which worked better when it was reran in Saturday mornings, but I, I love Johnny Quest. I should have, oh, we need to do an episode on Johnny Quest sometime. Eventually. After all, it's, it's on the list. Look, I will say, if there's anything I will say about Johnny Quest, it has one of 
in my opinion, one of the best theme songs ever. Unfortunately, none of those three shows could quite match the success of the Flintstones. Nope. And just about all of them did better on Saturday morning. To to the point to where in the 80s, the Jetsons got revived as a Saturday morning. Well, not a Saturday morning, but a syndicated show for children. Right. But as for the Flintstones, in season three, the show introduced Pebbles, a daughter for Fred and Wilma. As the show's audience started to slowly shift younger and thankfully Winston departed as the sponsor with Welch's grape juice taking over or just Welch's in period because it was a grape juice or grape aid I think they called it at one point as well as uh, their jams and jellies too because mm-hmm. I, I remember there's a commercial where Fred tells Pebbles why Welch's jelly is better than normal jelly and gives some jelly propaganda <laughs> Pebbles was a marketing success It helped keep the show fresh with a story arc about the Flintstones adjusting to life as parents. And it almost happened a lot differently. Originally, they were going to have a son named Fred Jr., but instead, a toy company, I don't remember which toy company, might have been Ideal, not sure. That was Uh, the name that first came to my mind. Yeah, I I know they sponsored the the Peter Potamus show, at the very least. And the Gorilla Gorilla. But yeah, they... They asked uh, Joe Barbera, is like, so what's the baby going to be? And Joe Barbera is like, it'll be a boy. He'll be a chip off the old rock, Fred Jr. And the guy from the toy agency was like, oh, that's a that's a real shame. I mean, we could make a lot of money if we we're selling a baby girl doll. And then, like, Joe Barbera is like, it's a girl. <laughs> well, at least he's honest. At least he's honest and you know what? I actually think picking a girl is better because it, it, I think it opens up a side of Fred that we didn't get beforehand. Indeed. So, of course, with Pebble's arrival, Barney and Betty just adore the kid, too. Which brings us to the 100th episode produced, but the 90th aired, Little Bam Bam. Uh, 91st aired, I think. Yeah, I believe you are correct. 91st. This episode opens with Wilma finishing the dishes and thanking the mammoth Henry, who is assisting, when she catches Fred laughing. And this laugh usually means trouble. Seemingly poor Dino's got a bone that's too big for him to take outside and bury. Yeah, the pea-brained dinosaur has no sense of spatial relationships and can't quite figure out if I turn it vertically. Oh, well. Fred's having a good laugh at uh, poor Dino's expense, and Wilma encourages him to go help the poor Dino. This is the most we see of Dino in these two episodes. This gives us more of a reason to revisit the show down the line. Yeah, either that or one of the many, many, many spinoffs. Yeah, we will definitely do a part two for this series, just like we're looking at part twos for real Ghostbusters and Angry Beavers and maybe Transformers. A lot of shows have long enough runs to justify it. Definitely. So watching the season four version of the intro, I can see what that toy salesman saw in making the Flintstones kid a girl. Pebbles is freaking adorable and just screams, buy a toy version of me with her very presence. And look, they have her using bootleg Legos in the intro. So dinner is in progress at the Flintstone home, and Wilma is struggling to get Pebbles to eat cactus mush. And Fred is chewing on one hell of a huge bone. Yeah. 
Wilma drafts Fred into the process, and as he takes a spoonful to show how good it is, the plan works too well, and Fred actually enjoys it. And eats all of the baby food. Yeah, now Pebbles is reaching for the spoonfuls as Fred tries to figure out the secret ingredient. Eh, unfortunately, <laughs> looks like Pebbles is not eating tonight. <laughs> when Wilma discovers the empty bowl, Pebbles tries to tell her that Daddy ate it all, but it's all gibberish to Wilma's ears. The frustrated look on Pebbles' face says it all. Yeah. To which Fred's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, speaking. Oh, boy. He speaks for most fathers, I imagine. <laughs> At least back then. Well, there's a lot of things I can relate to in that, this episode. Unfortunately, this is not one because I didn't have this this, this age with my kid. <laughs> so the Rubbles call to announce their impending arrival, and Fred complains they're over every night to see Pebbles. Well, of course, the Rubbles adore the kid. But Fred is fed up with Barney making a fool of himself for the baby and demonstrates so aggressively he makes Pebbles cry. T to be fair, I mean, even if my best and closest friend was coming over every single day, I think I would get a little annoyed with them too. I mean, I'm sure Fred wants to spend, you know, one, have qu a quiet night for once, and two, maybe he wants to spend time with his wife and child alone. Pam, is there something you're trying to tell me? No. <laughs> no, just... I, I just want to sympathize with Fred and say that he's not entire... While he expresses it in the worst part, worst possible way, because that is Fred, he is not totally out of, in the wrong. Okay, I'll come over less. <laughs> you don't come over at all. You're in New York. That's the joke! <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, Fred thinks Pebbles is getting wise to Barney's goofy act and plans to deep six Barney out the door, but said door gets slammed on him when the rubbles arrive. You know, as if Fred didn't have enough reason to be in a bad mood already. Yeah. When Barney asks Fred what Fred's doing there, he gets a snarky, playing hide and seek, what else? Which, despite someone who gives a lot of snarky comments... Barney doesn't seem to catch that he's being snarky. No, he, he's too focused on Pebbles. And when Barney goes into the routine, his way of doing it makes Pebbles laugh hysterically. The guy's just got the touch. He's got the power. He's got the touch. Okay, I'll stop. Fred still shoves Barney out and even threatens to legally revoke Barney's status as godfather. And it's also one of the few times you see Fred be kind of angry to uh, Betty, though he is... Far nicer about it than he is with Barney. <laughs> yeah. But he does tell them to get their own baby. Uh-oh. That's a bit harsh. Like I said earlier, Fred is quite the moody son of a gun. So, as a result, Betty is sobbing and Wilma is peeved. Boy, does she read him the riot act here. Yep. It's a good gag, though. I mean, it's it's a good deal. No, because Fred feels bad and says, I'm a heel. It's like, no, you're... Jealous, thoughtless, I forgot all the comments, but yeah. you're not a heel. So Fred realizes the error of his ways and goes to apologize. Of course, Betty's still crying, and Barney has the sobering realization that their own anxieties are being taken out on the Flintstones, since they still don't have a kid. 
Which, by the way, that makes us one of the first, like, TV shows to actually talk about that. It's never stated outright, but this is the first time in television history, indeed, just like you said, that matters of infertility are touched upon. And I have to give all the credit in the world to B. Benaderet for this performance. She does a really good job. Actually, to be quite honest, both her and Blank are really good in this episode. Yeah. Fred successfully and quite humbly apologizes, with Barney rattling off nearly the same list as Wilma, and Fred filling in what Barney missed. <laughs> you forgot quick tempered. <laughs> that 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 also is a really good gag. I actually uh rewatched these episodes. I uh Kyle, my friend Kyle was over yesterday and we rewatched them together, and he actually got a really good laugh out of that scene. So as Fred departs, the rebels catch note of a falling star and quickly make a wish for their own kid, as Barty admits to the fourth wall. <laughs> Barney, you're not supposed to talk to the fourth wall. Yeah, that, that's where that's where we get pink ponies. Oh no. Or very murderous, red-clad uh, assassins. Or gun for hire, whatever you want to call Deadpool. Or worse, both. <laughs> oh... Or, you know, also Garfield. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Garfield's relationship with the fourth wall is unique. So, the sun rises as the, uh, some bird or another crows. I'll be glad when real roosters develop. I'll sleep in every morning. <laughs> Barney gets the morning paper, and on the other side of their stoop is a turtle shell bundle. He's too impressed that Arnold, the paperboy, actually left it where it's supposed to go and misses the other bundle until it starts crying. To which he worries that it's uh, another basket of kittens, which makes me concerned how often that's happened at the Rubble's house, considering, you know, they don't have any cats. Yeah. <laughs> A bundle of kittens is worrying enough in its own. People, foster homes. Foster homes for cats exist for good reason, and they do great work. Oh, you, you just remind me of one of the darkest jokes in Tom and Jerry now. Save that for later. <laughs> but Barney only eventually discovers it's a giggling baby boy. And he is ecstatic. Yeah, he laughs that he, he'd have wished sooner if that was all it took. Betty doesn't believe him whenever he tells her that she is now a mother until he actually shows her and... Well, she throws a giant egg right onto Barney. But Barney, of course, takes it in stride and just jokes that now he knows what it's like to be hatched. Beep, beep. Of course, Betty is the more level-headed half, as is typical of these sitcoms of the era. And sitcoms of other eras. <laughs> but justifiably so in this case, she's worried that the tyke is someone else's. However, she finds... There's a note in the uh, basket that says otherwise. Yep. The note identifies the kid as Bam Bam and marks his status as an orphan needing a good home. That qualms her fears. Though it does make them wonder why he's named Bam Bam, but... Uh... <laughs> Barney <laughs> finds the kid's club, and this kid's already old enough to walk and asks for the club. Boy, he sure comes about his name naturally. <laughs> Bam, 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 bam. Okay, I deserved that for earlier. <laughs> Though, it might be worth mentioning who voices Bam Bam. 
Yep, that's Don Messick. The one that was supposedly not allowed to be in the show at the start. Yeah. Hey, if there's a Hanna-Barbera show and you don't have Don Messick in it, well, something's wrong. <laughs> so the kid's strength is ground-shaking, and the Rubbles do everything to try and get him to stop. But Barney gets the old pendulum slam for his trouble. To which, you know, yeah, Bam Bam grabs that finger pretty harsh. Bam, 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 bam. Now Barney has to explain why he was late for Fred, who gets puzzled for a brief moment until Barney explains the kid just arrived. This sends the mood-swingy Fred Flintstone into a state of jubilation insisting they take the day off and racing to go grab Wilma so they can celebrate. Hey, you know what? Fred's in the right on this. Yeah. Barney chuckles that Fred makes a fuss over every little thing, then realizes being a father isn't so little. And passes out. (laughs) Betty catches everyone up to speed on the orphan status, and Fred gets his own taste of the kid's super strength. This is also a good example of how I I feel... Pebbles has lightened Fred in a good way because Fred takes the uh, being slammed around by Bam Bam really well. (laughs) Well, it's probably part Pebbles and part just shocked that a kid that small is that strong. (laughs) Yeah, but if it was an adult, you know, Fred would just further just attempt to fight. (laughs) Yeah. Fortunately for everyone, Betty is already planning on going to the Child Welfare Authority that afternoon to make the whole thing legal. Good on her. Yeah. And then Pebbles is introduced to Bam Bam. And it's Cutie Pie City over here with Bam Bam trying to fix his hair to impress her. And then him trying to teach her how to walk. And Joe Barbera counting money from merchandising two tykes now. <laughs> okay, that's less cute, but it's still accurate. Yes. And we also get to see Bam Bam take out a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. They stroll into the next yard, and the parents realize that's where one mean saber-toothed cat resides. But Bam Bam comes to the rescue, and Barney channels Doggy Daddy. That's my son! (laughs) Also, I I have questions about uh, these adults' parenting abilities if they let their kids walk out out the door like that, but eh, it's a Stone Age. it, it may be modern Stone Age, but modern parenting, it ain't. <laughs> I also want to mention that I have a soft spot for this episode because my child is actually adopted. So, mm. or I adopted my child. So, it's a soft spot for me. En route to the CWA, very slowly taking every goat path since the Rubbles don't want to jostle the tyke. Admittedly, Bam Bam could probably take it. Yeah, I was about to say, if there's any tyke, you don't need to have to worry about that with its Bam Bam. But you know what? Betty just became a mom for in the last couple of hours, so fair. <laughs> yeah, those instincts kick in quick. So Barney and Betty tell the counselor they want to do everything by the law. And the law says Bam Bam's a war to the state until the red tape can be cut through. But said counselor thinks they have an excellent chance of having him back within a week. Fair enough. An orderly is dispatched to take Bam Bam, who snidely thinks there's nothing special about the kid. You see one, baby, you've seen them all. But Barney knows, and Bam Bam shows, much better. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) 
Actually, I'll say what I have to say later. But yeah, Barney does definitely say the. It's like, oh, you think he's normal, do you? Why don't you like let him hold your finger? <laughs> to which we only hear the slams and the bams. So a week goes by, and Wilma has heard no news from the Rubbles about Bam Bam, while her can opener laments having to open things he doesn't like the taste of. Meanwhile, in order to try to make himself look as good as possible, Barney's been taking this old lady across the street constantly, all day. (laughs) And paying her $10 a day for the trouble. He's He's taking taking no no chances. chances. A transition later reveals the Rubble's application has been denied, and as Betty informs Barney, the old lady complains she knew the job wouldn't be steady. Wow. See, Barney, this is why you shouldn't have had the orderly get attacked by Bam Bam. (laughs) It turns out, at the CWA, there was a prior application for the firstborn they took in made by a stony feller millionaire couple. Ah, the rich. Always get what they want. Barney is elated for Bam Bam's luck, but remembers what was at stake when Betty starts dragging him away. Oh, it's like, our son's a millionaire! Oh, wait. He's no longer my son. Wilma suggests legal action, and the lawyer, one Bronto Burger Esquire, says they have a chance via Nully for Fendi, or Finders Keepers Losers Weepers. <laughs> this is moving pretty quick for a Hanna-Barbera show. But that doesn't feel forced at the same time. No, no. Things move even more quickly as we next see their day at court. And the judge is a stony feller? Whoa, 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 whoa. Now wait just a minute. That's a clear conflict of interest. It doesn't matter that the judge is mad as his brother. He's still related and cannot be considered impartial. Well, Stone Age law, too. Yeah. Though, I, I, who's the Stony... Uh, the Stony feller that is trying to get Bam Bam is obviously blank. <laughs> I will say that. Yeah, and he says his wife is sick and his lawyer is running late, and the judge really isn't impressed. However, things go wrong when we find out who his lawyer is when he finally enters the room. Yep, Mr. Berger is in a panic when this lawyer arrives. It's Perry Masonry, a parody of radio and TV courtroom drama character Perry Mason, complete with a pastiche of his show's theme song. And voiced by Don Messick. Yeah. Their case is as good as sunk, but Barney is optimistic. Now, as I made these connections, I did a little diving, and Bronto Berger, the other lawyer, is apparently a parody of the Perry Mason Show's district attorney, Hamilton Berger, which to audiences of the day would have been a clear signal of what was coming next when Berger appears in the cartoon before the Mason parody. Anyhow, Perry is Don Messick's Ranger Smith voice, which isn't that far from Mason's best-known actor, Raymond Burr. It works. Yeah. So the line of questioning in the case is who could provide Bam Bam, a.k.a. Exhibit A, the best life and surroundings. And Barney objects that the kid is not named Exhibit A. He's named Bam Bam. The judge objects that the kid's name hasn't been established in court. And Bam Bam imitates the judge's banging his gavel, which makes the judge reconsider real fast. (laughs) Makes everybody reconsider really fast, even Masonary. 
Barney takes the stand next and is asked where he was on July the 10th of last year. And of course, like any normal person, Barney doesn't remember since it's a randomly picked date. Barney claims his memory fails him, and Mason reuses that to railroad the witness that his forgetfulness could be a detriment to Bam Bam. Boo! Boo! The real Perry Mason would be ashamed. He would, but then again, this is a cartoon. Yeah. Berger says masonry is making Barney look like a monkey. And we flash over to see that. Yeah, that's happening literally. (laughs) Masonry rests his case. And when we return to the scene, it's post-verdict. And sadly, the rubbles do not get Bam Bam. Yeah. But Stonyfeller gets a call from his wife, which gives Barney a chance to say a sad goodbye to Bam Bam. Again, Blank really nails it in these scenes. Boy, does he. You can tell Barney is absolutely heartbroken. But here's where the tide turns. Stonyfeller returns over the moon that his wife is actually able to have kids after all. So it's only fair Bam Bam is given to the Rubbles. Wow. A reasonable rich person. (laughs) Somehow, I don't see modern one percenters doing that. No, I probably would say, oh, we got two kids now. Betty and the Flintstones rush in after that, and Perry declares Bam Bam is 100% theirs legally and permanently. In real life, I don't think a lawyer could declare that, but considering how little left is in the runtime of this episode... uh... And it's still Stone Age law. (laughs) Yeah. The crew celebrates, but realizes Barney is missing, and spot him saying life just isn't worth living. So we flash to a scene of Barney with a boulder and a tied to a rope that he's going to throw into the river with himself. Yep. Which is a... Dark. Well, it's dark, but it's also pretty common with Hanna-Barbera because they had a similar scene in one of the Top Cat episodes where Choo Choo was broken up over an ex-girlfriend and was doing a similar stunt. Fred grabs the rope to tell Barney the good news, and Barney decides he doesn't need the rock anymore, pitching it and Fred into the river. Fred gripes that saving his life was Fred's big mistake. <laughs> and fortunately for Fred, and it wasn't a very deep uh, river. Yeah, it turns out they didn't have much to worry about. Unless Barney fell directly on the rock. Oh, yeah. Also, oh. speaking of which, that rock is completely gone, I might also point out. <laughs> That's your Uncle Fred, Bam Bam. He may look all wet, but he's really a nice guy. And we all laugh. And for once, the everyone laughs trope feels earned. Yep. Even angry Fred laughs because how could you not? Yeah. So as the show wound down in its sixth season, Fred and company were certainly not going to just fade away. Six seasons, after all, was a record for animated programming in primetime. And one that would not be broken until the Simpsons left it in the dust. Boy, howdy. Huh. I just noticed something on this. Betty's not... uh, Betty's voice actress isn't credited at the end credits. That's odd. All it lists is uh, starring the voice of Alan Reed as Fred Flintstone, featuring voices of Mel Blanc as Barney Rubble, Gene Vanderpill as Wilma, and then other voices, Don Messick and Hal Smith. And Janet... And Janet Waldo, I believe. 
It doesn't show it on these end credits. Weird. Yeah, weird. So, along with Yogi Bear, the Flintstones were the most successful and recognizable characters in Hanna-Barbera's library. So it was only natural they followed Yogi into theaters. What seemed less natural was it was in the form of a spy movie parody with the man called Flintstone. Which is actually a pretty impressively animated movie. And hey, by the by, in a few months, our friends at That's Not Quite All Folks will be doing a commentary about that movie. Cool. Yeah, they're, they're planning on doing all the Hanna-Barbera theatrical releases. Also cool. There's not a whole lot of them, but... Yeah. Fred and Barney would also turn up in another unlikely place a few months earlier as a double-act version of the Caterpillar in Hanna-Barbera's take on Alice in Wonderland, also dubbed What's a Nice Kid Like You Doing in a Place Like This? I also have... I, I found this on YouTube a while back, but I found a, a short animation that uh, Hanna-Barbera made starring Fred and Barney trying to... Uh, I, I think this was sent, given to Aurora Toys to try to... Uh, to get Hanna-Barbera to try to sell themselves as uh, promotional... As commercial pitchmen. Yes. It's actually pretty cute because Fred keeps forgetting his lines and Barney keeps having to bring in cue cards that are these giant slabs. <laughs> okay. Folks, before I go any further, I know I'm going to miss things. <laughs> the Flintstones do not have a short history, and condensing it into this postscript in its exhaustive entirety would be exhausting and eventually dull. So if we missed your favorite Flintstone spinoff project, product, or paraphernalia, we invite you to comment about why we shouldn't have in the comments on the YouTube version or on our Instagram page. There is a lot. A proper new television series for the characters wouldn't come along until the Saturday morning show Pebbles and Bam Bam, aging the kids up to teenagers and giving Suzanne Summers her first starring role as Pebbles. Fred and company would have multiple new animated shows, compilation packages, specials, made-for-TV movies, and scads of cameos basically from there on out, with the run ending with the 1994 movie of Flintstone's Christmas Carol. That same year, of course, they transitioned to live action, with John Goodman, Rick Moranis, Elizabeth Perkins, and Rosie O'Donnell as the main characters with Dino brought to life by Jim Henson's Creature Shop and archival recordings of Mel Blanc. Uh, recently, I went to a retro toy store and actually picked up a figure of John Goodman, Fred Flintstone. It's uncanny. <laughs> of course, many of these at further Flintstone projects are on our ever-growing list, including and especially the baffling shorts of the Flintstones Comedy Hour in 1980, casting Fred and Barney as cops alongside, of all things, the freaking schmoo! Actually, that's the Fred and, That's actually the Flintstones comedy show, which oh. actually got renamed later as the Flintstone Funnies, which I think is what it's called on Amazon right now. Thanks, Wikipedia. You goofed me up. Because the Flintstone comedy hour was actually a sequel show to the Pebbles and Bam Bam show. Then that show got reduced from an hour to 30 minutes and also got called the Flintstone Comedy Show. So there's a lot of confusion. Yeah. <laughs> this also isn't counting numerous other spin-off and revival projects that never actually made it off the ground. Pemmy, some highlights of these, if you please. Yeah, there was the Seth MacFarlane attempt to uh, bring back the Flintstones. 
because yeah, I'm sorry, I don't want <laughs> I, I don't have any 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 positive feelings about whether or not that would work. Let's see, shoot, that's the only one that's popping in my head at the moment. There's Black been stones? multiple What? The Blackstones? Oh, there were, there was actually a uh, I don't remember the black what the Blackstones. Yeah, there was going to be a uh, African American centric Flintstone spinoff. I actually did not know that. I didn't, however, know that there in the seventies there was in a pre production phase a show called The New Flintstones, which would have had the Flintstone cast in the modern day. Kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> Also raises questions about like what would they do for Dino, but someone on Twitter made a response to that that because someone because uh, uh, see there's a Twitter I follow called Hanna Barbera Screencaps that actually posted the the production like uh, sketches and stuff they did for this show and designs and whatnot and someone in the comments asked where's Dino which someone responded with in the gas tank. Oh. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> I actually didn't know about the Black Suns. That, that one's new to me. Uh, boy, God, that yeah. that's a that's hitting the that naming hint is hitting the having the hammer hit the nail. Yeah, go look up the image while I talk about more current stuff. Alrighty. Hey, at least I remembered the new Flintstones though. <laughs> Since then, projects with these characters have been far more sporadic. The most recent being another Pebbles and Bam Bam related series, Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs, which was produced in 2018, but only started airing in 2021 on HBO Max. Meanwhile, a new series intended to bring the cast back to their primetime roots on Fox, called Bedrock, is in development with Elizabeth Banks Production Company, with Banks to star as an adult Pebbles just on the cusp of the Bronze Age. Also, just this year, a new animated feature set before Fred and Wilma got married was announced by Warner Animation with a script by Aaron Horvath and Michael Jelenic, who were the directors behind the Super Mario Brothers movie. And you know what else they're they're responsible for? Teen Titans? Yep. Or Teen Titans Go. Not Teen Titans, but Teen Titans Go. For better Uh, or worse. Well, the Mario movie was fun. Um, Yeah, so... I also am interested in that TV show because I got to admit the idea of moving them to the Bronze Age is an actual interesting concept. And yeah, I just looked at the Blackstones and wow, <laughs> oh, yeah, wow. Wow. wow, indeed, wow. This feels like one of those mini cases where it's like there, there's some good intentions behind this, but oh no. <laughs> so to wrap things up. Culturally, the Flintstones retain relevancy not just in animation, but as mascots for Post's Fruity and Cocoa Pebbles cereals and Bayer's Flintstone Vitamins to this day. No shortage of other products came and went over the years. I specifically remember the Push Pops. Yeah. And Bedrock would be a staple location at theme parks ran by Taft Broadcasting through the mid-90s who were the owners of Hanna-Barbera for a good deal of time before they're being picked up by Turner in 1991. They would also feature in various capacities at Universal Studios parks during the early years in Orlando, and to tie into the live-action movie at the Hollywood Park with a live show. 
I am infinitely going to be sad that I never got to experience that fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera right at Universal Studios when I was a kid. Same. Same. Uh, at least I was able to find the footage from said ride on YouTube, even though it's of questionable quality. This isn't even including the defunct standalone parks that were roadside attractions in Arizona and South Dakota. And currently running attractions themed to the characters at the Warner Brothers World Indoor Amusement Park in uh, Abu Dhabi. Wait, Abu Dhabi's a real place? Surprisingly so. And I wonder if Nermal will visit it the next time he's sent there by Garfield. I literally for, thought Jim Davis had made up that place just for just for Garfield. Well, yeah. When we looked at pictures and the website for that place, boy, were we getting jealous. Yeah, I know. It looks absolutely amazing. They have the Hall of Justice from the Super Friends. Granted, I think there's a couple Six Flags parks that have a Hall of Justice exterior to, to a dark ride of some sort. Yeah, but I mean... Eh. The thing with Six Flags, it's all about... It, it's less about the, the setup or the the style. It's more just about the roller coasters. Yeah. I mean, holy crud, the Flintstone outfits they have look amazing. I mean, the fact they pulled off making the Flintstones look believable in real life, in 3D, mad impressive. And I'm going to put this uh, to you another way, why I'm so jealous of that place. One of their snack kiosks is named Penelope Pit Stops Cotton Candy. They gave what is now basically a B-tier character significant acknowledgement. I also like the uh, Mr. Freeze uh, ice cream truck. Oh, yeah. They literally have a section called Gotham City. Yeah, with a penguin walk-around character costume. And a Scooby-Doo ride. Did you see the YouTube video for that yet? Yeah. Folks, we're going to drown our heartbreak in equal measures of Fruity and Cocoa Pebbles. Yabba dabba do. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. See ya. The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.